I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, everybody. How's your Monday going? How you doing? It's Jeremy here from the uh, Sick Boy Podcast of the E1 Podcast Network. And uh, this week, we're going to throw it to uh, a bit of a different episode than normal. Uh, we weren't actually recording this one in our home recording studio. We actually traveled uh, somewhere else in the city to this, like, basically this empty, empty warehouse to conduct a conversation with our new pal, Dr. Mark Tyndall. And uh, Mark is the director of the British Columbia Center for Disease Control. Basically, we have this, this lovely chat about the... The very serious, very scary uh, opioid epidemic happening uh, across the world, really. Um, and what makes this episode a bit different is obviously we're not in the recording studio. We're in this, uh, we're in this sort of um, uh, empty space that is that is being uh, used and and moved into by Dispension Industries, which is a company that is is building these. These uh, machines that will be used for dispensing um, uh, THC marijuana products once they they go the the government goes public that's the that's the idea behind these machines. But Dr. Mark Tindall actually uh, came on the show to talk about how they're looking at using these these machines to potentially uh, d- dispense um, uh, methadone or other other uses of treatment for for harm reduction uh, in the city of Vancouver. Really fascinating episode. Uh, controversial for sure. Uh, there was a couple comments on our Facebook live stream that uh, it, it didn't sit well with some people. But hey, you know what? There's a problem. There needs to be a solution. And, and sometimes you got to think outside of the box, which is why we love this conversation. We hope you do too. And uh, oh, before I forget, keep your ears peeled. We've got some dates coming up uh, in the fall. We're going to be traveling all over the place. We've already got a live show lined up at a university, um, and uh, we, we're not going to announce it. We'll announce it in the, in the coming weeks, but just keep your eyes uh, and ears peeled because we are going to be making some trips and very, very likely going to be hitting a city near you. All right, we hope you enjoy this week's episode, and uh, see you all on the other side. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Dr. Mark Tyndall. He's the director of the British Columbia Center for Disease Control. Jeez, that's a mouthful. Let's talk about all of that. Um, so we are really excited today to be sitting down with our very, very special guest, Dr. Mark Tyndall, uh, the director of the British Columbia Center for Disease Control. Did I get that right? Perfect. That's a mouthful. <laughs> but you've got the CDC, the BC CDC, and also something to do with the UBC. Yeah, you're a teacher, the professor at the UBC as well. I am. There's a lot of B's and C's and D's and all of that. Um, as we as we 
dive into our conversation today, uh, one other thing that I would like to request from you guys at home, if you're listening or watching, is to send us your questions. Leave a question in the comment section below, and at the end of this conversation, we will be answering some of those Facebook questions. Um, so, so make it good. Yeah, make sure they're not uh, they're not garbage, or else we won't read them. And if you're wondering if I cut my hair, yes, I, I did. I did cut <laughs> my hair. Show so. there. Look, at Look at that little thing Look at the good. top here. What's happening here? Uh, no, it's a it's a cowlick. Oh, All right, okay. let's get into it, uh, Mark. I am so glad that. Uh, do I have to call you Doctor Mark every time? Uh, sure. Why don't you see that? Yeah. <laughs> it's like he spent a lot of time yeah. and money for you for to, yeah, to yeah, get it. Exactly. So I, and I think that's why yeah. it's so important that we do. Well, here's yeah. my first question: Are you one of those? Uh, are you one of those people that puts that prefix in when you book your flights? I do not. Uh, why? Oh, you know really? what's funny? I do. Because <laughs> I don't want to be called. You know, uh, yeah, they, they don't want. They, they don't want to be called up to the front of the right, plane. Exactly. We need a doctor, yeah, yeah, and we know that there's one but, named Mark Tyndall. <laughs> He's sitting somewhere here. No. He's like, no. Or who's the jerk? Taylor, who put doctor before his yeah, name. Yeah, instead they're like, uh, they're like, is there a Dr. Taylor McGilvery? I believe he's seated next to Mark Tyndall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> next to Mark Tyndall, not a doctor, everyone, not a doctor. Um, Mark, you are, I'm, I'm actually really excited for this conversation because you, you're, correct me if I'm wrong, but your specialty is in the world of epidemiology, Correct. Uh, yes, I have training in epidemiology. Yeah, so yeah. why don't, for the, for the people listening at home, and actually for myself too, and I'm sure for these two, yeah. yep. uh, what is an epidemiologist, or what is the world of epidemiology? Well, I actually need a whiteboard to really explain things properly, um, but it, essentially it's the study of disease. So um, looking at statistics, the prevalence and incidence, um, and a lot of epidemiology studies hopefully lead us to interventions to try to improve people's health. Okay, right. so have you seen the movie Contagion? I have. Okay, scariest movie I've ever seen because when I watch that, it's like the, for people who haven't seen it, it's a movie where there's like this very serious uh, virus outbreak. That is contagious. That, uh, that is very contagious and kills a lot of people. <clears throat> um, what is the reality of something like that happening? Oh, um, geez, big question. Yeah, man. Jesus. No. Well, I'm just trying to, to, to well, you know, there's, uh, rationalize there are my contagious fears. viruses out there. So, um, the, the last major global pandemic we had would be the influenza pandemic, uh, which killed hundreds of thousands of people. So, uh, that, that's probably it's, um, you know, smallpox basically mm-hmm. wiped out, um, a lot of North American Indians at the, when, uh, they came in contact with, uh, Europeans. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, been massive tuberculosis epidemics. Um, and the most recent is, of course, is HIV, where, mm-hmm. uh, 70 million people have been infected with HIV and half of those have died already. So there's, uh, what was there's that, bad that, things out there. What was HIV considered? Was that a, an, an epidemic, a, a pandemic? Like, like, what are those, yeah. what do those terms mean? Like, how, how do you, how do you differentiate one from the other? What, what is, uh, well, a, a, an epidemic is really any disease prevalence above what you'd expect. So from normally, so uh, something like the we call the overdose an epidemic because it's uh, way higher than what uh, normally we would expect. A pandemic really refers to how far it spreads around the world. So pandemic is thinking. really a global. So HIV is a pandemic. So mm-hmm. it's affected every country in the world. Obviously, there's areas that are were much more affected than others, but um, uh, HIV is uh, is definitely a pandemic. Would HIV still be a pandemic today? 
yeah, it's still uh, it's still widespread. Right. I mean, um, I you know, ironically, as far as disease goes, um, because we have good treatment, um, people continue to live. So the number of people living with HIV today is actually higher than in the '90s when the spread was going on. Oh, wow. So many more people um, that would have been dead without treatment are now uh, continuing to live. Mm-hmm. Right, well, yeah. and what what. Yeah, I feel like any anybody who gets into into medicine and finds themselves. I mean, I I, I can say that I think the study of disease and and especially when you talk about uh, you know widespread diseases and things that have major major impacts on large populations is really fascinating. Has kind of its own uh, its own kind of uh, um, thing to it. What led you into this field? Is it sort of like I was interested in, interested in it, and that's it, or is there is there something more behind you know your reasoning for getting into epidemiology in terms of following medicine? Yeah, well, I was actually um, my interest when I entered medical school was in global health. So I, I did um, medical school and then internal medicine and then an infectious disease fellowship. So I, I was really, clinically I'm trained as an infectious disease person. And so that, you're like the contagion specialist. Like you were behind the scenes on the movie, like yeah. Matt Damon's, figuring out Matt how Damon's exactly it would personal, work. I, I, personal I did advisor. find some inconsistencies in their presentation of this. So yeah, I was a <laughs> yeah. critic of this. <laughs> probably wouldn't happen like that. Yeah. Um, and then um, my infectious disease uh, training took me to Africa. I worked in uh, in Kenya for four years. And then um, because I wanted to do more research in epidemiology, I actually went back and got a uh, doctoral degree in epidemiology. So um, I trained mainly in infectious diseases, but then turned into an epidemiologist. And yeah. when you're, uh, you know, the, 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 I feel like the last thing that people, especially publicly, were going, oh my God, is, is this going to kill us, was Ebola. Would you have, would you be yeah that was a, that, that was really big in the news like that really was a big in the sensational news. yeah I think it was in terms of how I I interpreted that whole thing it seemed to be more more news oriented or news contrived than than reality but I you know again I don't know is yeah. there what was from your standpoint in the in the field was there a lot of substance to to that big news no. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like what Taylor's trying to say is, we were sweating up here. (laughs) How much were you sweating? (laughs) Never a chance that anybody in Halifax was ever going to get Ebola. That's really unfortunate for our podcast. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. So, uh, the, um, uh, you know, um, I think we'll we'll get into the overdose epidemic, what I'm here now, Mm -hmm. but the attention to Ebola and the money that we spent on protecting people from Ebola was far greater than we've done for the overdose epidemic when mm. in a situation where there was never any chance there was going to be transmission in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, the, what what really threw us off was there was uh, those couple of transmissions in Dallas. Mm-hmm. So um, that created mayhem because um, it's very hard to catch Ebola um, um, if you take precautions. So we thought that people in hospital... Oh, you mean taking, it's, it's hard to catch it? It's hard to catch it as a person getting it you know what I mean yeah. it's hard to catch like I, I took that as it's hard to stop it no it's really hard in the, <laughs> I took in that the, as it's hard to yeah. literally catch it in yeah, your yeah. Hand. Yeah. and no, throw it, it to your friend it's, it's, it's smallish so, the actual <laughs> small. so it's uh, extremely um, it's extremely contagious as far as ex- if you get exposed there's a high likelihood you'll be infected but taking 
precautions, um, you're, you're likely not to, to get it. Mm-hmm. In a hospital environment, we thought there's no way people could get mm-hmm. it, but a couple of nurses got it, and that created a lot more hysteria. Yeah. But the situation in the East, er, sorry, the West African countries where it spread and was devastating to people, obviously, yeah. um, there was just no, uh, good education and really no um, good barriers to, that people could actually use to avoid getting exposed. So mm-hmm. things just Ooh. blew up um, because of a, a very um, a poor health structure and a very difficult, a lot of difficulty getting the message out to people that Ebola was there and protect yourself. And so you, I, I want to get to the what we're here to actually talk about today, uh, which I think is really important. Um, and before we before we get right into it, I just want to remind everybody at home, if you're listening or watching, uh, leave your questions in the comments below. We're going to be answering some questions at the end uh, of this conversation. Um, to, to segue, um, I kind of had a question that relates to both sides of it. And I'm curious, you, you mentioned that, yeah, you are, you are here to talk about... Um, uh, the overdose epidemic, but I'm, I'm interested in that fact about Ebola. You, you said that we spent so much more money in in prevention, um, in trying to prevent Ebola from spreading here, yet um, yet we're not spending enough money on the on the opioid epidemic. So um, why is that? Like, is it is it the marketing of it, the fear of of Ebola? I, I, I think that um, at the root of it is stigma and that we don't care enough about people who are using drugs and um, we're just not, it hasn't captured our attention that uh, in the province of British Columbia, four people are dying per day. I mean, wow. and uh, so we have, uh, it, it's really just um, a society that has decided that this is not a population that's really worth, uh, worth the trouble. Can you... For, for everybody, you know, I, I've been to Vancouver several times. Um, and, you know, I know that downtown east side quite, quite well. Um, and can you kind of set the scene for anybody who might not be familiar with, 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 with Vancouver and that, that problem that exists? I mean, it, it exists in a lot of places. Um, you know, your work is in BC, uh, and I'm sure that's probably where you do most of your work or where most of your work is focused is probably in Vancouver and in that, that's, mm-hmm. that, that spot in Vancouver. Can you set the scene of, of what that's all about for sure. people who don't know? Yeah. I mean, I, I do, um, look at things more provincially now and um, a lot of the issues that we're facing and a lot of lessons learned in the downtown east side environment are very applicable to other places now and we've known now with the uh, widespread deaths of people um, using opioids that it isn't confined to the downtown east side and the data that we have from bc shows there's pockets of this happening everywhere mm-hmm. um but my first um initiation to the downtown east side was in the late 1990s so um i did clinical work there at several clinics mostly working um with hiv and trying to get people diagnosed and treated with hiv um and the um issues of uh the poverty drug use um, and mental illness that we weren't dealing with is, uh, was there then. Um, things are probably much the same, uh, probably not much worse. Um, there's probably more services than in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, um, the overdose problem, um, was 
you know, fairly, uh, uh, a fairly stable until the last three years. And that's totally due to an unregulated drug market and the arrival of fentanyl and the disappearance of heroin. So it's, so it's uh, started, you've seen a, you've seen increases started to rise. Yeah, about uh, 2014, 2015, it started to inch, inch up. And then uh, the last uh, two to three years has just been um, exponentially increased. And last year in the province, there was uh, almost 1,500 people die. What's the, wow. like, what is the deal with fentanyl? Is it like, is, <clears throat> is fentanyl as a drug um, itself a new thing? Or is it, ju- did it just become a new, um, uh, sort of like fad drug, uh, like yeah. street drug. Like yeah. I, I feel like, I mean, I've 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 been I've been given fentanyl in 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 hospital for like severe pain, yeah. and then I would just imagine that like most of those painkillers are are drugs that have been around for a long time. Yeah, um, that's true. I mean, this, there's nothing um, nothing new or special about fentanyl. It's a synthetic opioid yeah. that's been widespread in the hospitals. It became quite a cornerstone of uh, cancer care um, using fentanyl patches, so slow-release patches because a very powerful opioid. But uh, you, you could formulate it that it gave people um, you know relief through the, a 24-hour period mm-hmm. with a patch. Um, so there's uh, this dr- fentanyl itself has been around for decades. Um, how it replaced the, the heroin market is something that I, I can't really explain. Um, right. If it was purely economics, um, it, people would have thought of this a long time ago. Um, mm-hmm. But something happened to our heroin supply in British Columbia. At the same time, we've uh, squeezed the street supply of diverted pharmaceutical drugs. So there's been a real push for doctors not to not to use these drugs as much anymore. Mm-hmm. It's been shown they're not particularly good for chronic pain, so that we shouldn't we should limit people's uh, exposure to these drugs. But um, when you have so many people dependent, uh, that's what's caused the overdose epidemic. So all of a sudden, people who needed these drugs uh, don't have them anymore. Um, heroin disappeared and uh, fentanyl came in to take its place. Just replace and it. Right? Is, there, is the fentanyl that somebody <laughs> is the fentanyl that somebody is going to use on the street? Are they taking like prescription and not not their prescription, but are they taking pre- prescription grade fentanyl, or is it something that is being that is being formulated? You know, for lack of a better visualization, like in somebody's basement or in, in yeah. You know, no, in, it's it's fascinating. It is formulated in people's basements. The um so. When uh, fentanyl was never um, a drug that you'd get from the drugstore, except in the form of patches. So um, I first saw people using fentanyl in Ottawa, and they were using uh, diverted patches. And the uh, crazy thing about this is people would um, get a patch and cut it into 10 strips, which would basically, with the amount in the patch, would give people what they needed for a fix. But the distribution of the drug within the patch was not even. So people right. would buying a, a end strip of the patch um, and getting nothing out of it and saying, what the hell, I just bought this from you. It, there's nothing in it. I cooked it down. And then they'd get the middle strip with most of the drug in it and they'd die of an overdose. So right. yeah. my advice to those people was never buy a strip. 
um, buy the whole patch and then cook it and split it into 10 because at least you'd have the distribution properly. Right. Right. The, the arrival of actually pills that were fentanyl that people grinded up and injected and actual white powder that's fentanyl um, was uh, brought in by the black market. It was not, it's not as though people got fentanyl prescriptions from their doctor in the form of pills and grind it up and use it. Mm-hmm. That was never available, not on any formulary. So um, this um, came in through the the black market. And, and there's uh, no regulation there. There's totally no, no regulation. quality control or anything like that. No, right. we need Walter White. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, if, right. if Walter was brought in to <laughs> yeah. work the fentanyl, we would have no overdoses, right? Yeah, right. We would have pure, well-regulated product. I'm interested in, in, in that first part of that, that you said, you said um, I would say that they should buy a patch and then cut it up into the strips, as if like you're offering advice mm. to someone on how to do it a better way. Um, but I did a little bit of research into um, where you come from and and what your philosophy is on on all of this and and the term that I kept seeing come up was harm reduction and I'm interested to know um, how you kind of have developed that type of mindset and outlook on this and and what type of role that plays in 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 where you are trying to um, lead the Center for D- Disease Control in, in in BC to kind of solve this epidemic. Yeah, well, that's a good question. Harm reduction is still a hard sell in a lot of places. Um, for many of us who've worked in these uh, situations, it's just such an obvious thing. It really came from the HIV epidemic. So um, in the late nine or, you know, really late 80s and through the 90s, HIV was spreading very quickly. We knew it was because people were sharing needles. It made absolutely no sense not to give them clean needles. So um, that was very controversial when it started. Um, um, and now most people, I think, would accept that it's it's really stupid putting people in a situation where they're going to get HIV and hepatitis C because mm. they're sharing needles. So most of us would think from a practical point of view, why do we want anybody getting HIV? Just give them a clean needle. So that was kind of the, the impetus for harm reduction. And then the next step, real, the big thing was supervised injection sites. So in, uh, it was quite clear that people were um, using in very dangerous places. Uh, we can give them a clean needle, but if they're sitting out in the rain in an alley and running from police, like it's a kind of crazy thing to make people do. So mm-hmm. allow them to come inside and use the drugs there. So that... Um, has gained some acceptance, but still from community to community, it's always a controversial area. We don't want people injecting drugs. But it's, it's to me, it's just common sense. You want people injecting drugs in alleys and behind your car? Mm-hmm. Like, it makes no sense right. to me. I, I, I agree with you, and I pulled this, I pulled this from your uh, TED Talk that I was watching uh, earlier today. And you said, this, is, this really sums it up for me in the most simplest of terms, you said, if recovery is going to happen, we have to keep people alive. And I really just heard you say that in the talk and thought, sold, you know, because if you, if you're not around, I can't, and it was, it was, it was, it was, it was surrounding the topic of, well, shouldn't you be trying to help people recover from drugs instead of giving them better places to do drugs? And it's like, well, if they're dead, then because of an overdose because they you know they used drugs in a in a place where they were unsupervised or they were using bad material uh, or hazardous material then why can't we can't help them and that really kind of struck home with me so 
and then the my, the thought that came directly after that is what are what are the arguments you're hearing from the other side of from people that are saying harm harm reduction isn't the way what are what is that side putting forward in terms of a method to to solve this well somehow they some uh, you know how people get off the hook by saying, well, I really care about people. Why would I want them to use these poisons? I want them to get better and to get into rehab and stop using drugs. And so we end up at the same place. I think most of the people that I deal with would be better off if they didn't have to inject drugs every day. But Mm -hmm. um, right now, there's no road for them to do that. Um, I think somebody like um, Doug Ford, who could be the next premier of Ontario, wants to shut down all supervised injection sites, no harm reduction. And he has firsthand knowledge about what it's like to have an addicted person in their family. And I bet they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to get his brother shipped down to the United States to get rehabilitated and it didn't work. <laughs> um, and so if yeah. he's, he's advocating, we take, you know, tens of thousands of people in Canada and send them to Chicago for a hundred thousand dollar intensive rehab. I guess we could try that. Mm-hmm. I know it doesn't work very well, but it's for people who are pushing that. It's just not a practical response to people. Mm-hmm. And most people use drugs not because they're addicted to the drugs, but they, they want to use drugs because they're in pain and psychological mm-hmm. pain and physical pain. And I've always maintained that people will continue to use drugs until they find something better. Mm. <laughs> and if better is stop using drugs, go sit in your rat-infested apartment and don't come out, I mean, most people will continue to use drugs. So yeah. the the integration, connection, giving people activities... Uh, integrating them back in society is uh, part of their recovery. Mm. And mo- people I've seen who don't use anymore who are, who are or who are on substitution therapy have had something happen to them that turns the corner for them and they want to get mm. better. But mm. a lot of people now <coughs> at risk and are overdosing, I can't offer them anything better. I mean, the drugs right now are the best thing they got. Um we, we often, in med, the medical view of it is that uh, the drugs are the problem, but for many people using drugs, it, that's the answer. That's what they found is the best thing for them right now, and we have to meet people where they are and understand that we need to show them something better if we mm-hmm. want them to stop using. Mm-hmm. And, and what's the what's demographic of the, the- the types of people you're finding in in um, that are that are using these types of drugs is it is it anybody and everybody or is it kind of more of a uh, the people that come from a, a, a more impoverished upbringing or how, how does this impact um, the different demographics and yeah that's a that's a great question because there's um, we know we have the data so in in British Columbia especially um, we're we're really um, now at a good point where we collect pretty good data on people and we know that uh, for the most part this is a heavily traumatized group of people who have been in the system a long time of the people in the last year of the people who died in BC uh, 60% had a 
been in jail in the last five years and about 80% have been in jail in the last 10 years. So this is a criminalized, long-standing group of people who are overdosing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, the What gets into the media attention is more the people that nobody even knew they were using and, you know, they mm-hmm. were found mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> overdosed. And those are tragic cases and and especially the teenagers and those. But they there it's a pretty small proportion of people that are overdosing and impacted by this problem and mm. uh in the the downtown east side the the average the demographics of the people who've died in the last year 80 percent are male and um 80 percent are between 30 and 50 Ooh. so they're wow yeah. so that's so a when, staggering amount of and, and, uh of men versus women and yeah. i guess i guess knowing that stat then and again to play uh devil's advocate if if it's 60 percent of these people who are committing crimes and they're addicted to these drugs that are that are killing them what what do you say to somebody who says well they they deserve that they deserve that outcome well it's not it's it's a leap to say that they're 60% 60% are committing crimes. They've been yeah. arrested for drug-related stuff. Oh, it's so drug-related. They're, they're yeah. almost, I mean, they may have a lot of petty crimes, but you take somebody who's using these every day, we recognize that. Uh, they get a welfare check that doesn't even allow them to pay for housing. They, the only way to support their habit is through uh, alternate means. Yeah. Nobody's giving it. And whether they're stealing from their family or going to Shoppers Drug Mart every day and stealing toothpaste or whether they're breaking into your car and stealing mm. your umbrella. Mm-hmm. I mean, people right. are, it's, there's a whole economy that drives people and now we're calling them criminals. Yeah. And we give, if you can think of the, if you want to think of the worst thing possible we can do to somebody uh, struggling with addiction is criminalize them and so and Mm -hmm. give them put a young person in jail with other people there for the same reason give them a criminal record so it'll be very hard for them to ever work again Mm -hmm. and uh you know that that we you couldn't come up with a worse (laughs) a worse process right i had a question and i feel like the answer is is in what you just just kind of spoke to there and it, it, you know, we, we've been doing this podcast now for a couple of years and, and our, our primary goal is to destigmatize illness, right? Through, through conversation. Um, and we've spoken to people living with, I mean, you name it, we've, we've touched on it. Um, and sure, there's lots of stigma surrounding physical illness and, and lots and lots of stigma surrounding mental illness. But I feel like the stigma that surrounds addiction just absolutely trumps all of the other stigma, mm. and and it's kind of everything wrapped into one because it's got that physical side, it's got the mental side. Sure, right, but but I mean, it like I and what I was what I was tr- sort of trying to get around to was like, do you think that that stigma comes from the fact that a lot of addiction is is sort of mixed up in in crime or criminality or let you know that like the that that we do not have that we do not legalize certain drugs and it makes it a crime to do it yet a lot of these drugs that are 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 looked at as you know schedule whatever it is one two that that are illegal are addictive like those are the addictive drugs i mean um I think I know. I, I know what you're trying to say that the, the the crime part of it. Like, is the crime is, like a big part of the the stigma? Is that why we can, find it I, so hard? I to, don't think you can have any anti-stigma campaigns or make any inroads into anti-stigma as long as it's criminalized. Right. It's, it's it's totally telling everybody 
that it's a terrible thing to do and it's so terrible, we're going to criminalize it and throw people in jail. Like what yeah. a message of stigma that is. Because yeah, you yeah. think like, you know, if someone says, um, oh, so-and-so is an alcoholic, you know, you think, you think, oh, that's, that's terrible. I hope they can get some help, like whatever that, whatever that thought around them, you know, getting help and, and getting better is. When you say some, that someone is a heroin addict, not saying that that, that thought process doesn't also come into play, but there's also that attachment to that every time that they are, they are shooting up, they're doing something illegal. Whereas when every time somebody puts a bottle to their mouth, they're not. Mm-hmm. And there's a, I think that that is a huge, uh, that's a huge gap. It's it, totally arbitrary. We made those rules. Totally, you know, exactly. We made those rules ourselves. And uh, the most of the problem that people t- have with their drug use is our po- drug policies and little to do with the drugs. I've known people who have used heroin for 25 years. Their their health <laughs> is uh, um, suffering because they've lived in poverty, been in and out of jail. Uh, they've never been able to hold a job. The, they've got their teeth kicked in. I mean, they're a wreck. Not because heroin, but because of the situation that we put them in through our drug policies. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, totally uh, preventable. Stuff. Right. So, uh, do you want to take that call? Let's see who it is, guys. <laughs> <laughs> who do you think it could be? Uh, I think it's someone famous. It's, uh, turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> um, is it Justin Trudeau? <laughs> it is Justin. He's like, I, I, guys, yeah, I was it, tuning hey, in to Sick Boy this, Live, yeah. and I wanted to talk about decriminalizing <laughs> drugs. Uh, I saw uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Carr the other night referred to. Uh, uh, Justin Trudeau is uh, a Disney. He was like, you guys have a Disney prince. For yeah. he, he sure looks like one. Sick Boy Podcast. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now, what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I saw a headline, um, and full disclosure, didn't read the article. That's kind of what I do. I just read headlines. And then you uh, make, I'm, I'm, a headline, you, I'm a big headline whore. And, and then, then you, make, just, you make long form statements about how you feel about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and the headline was basically saying that, um, there was, there was a number of people in the Liberal Party who were, were pushing to decriminalize drugs. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that they were talking like Portugal about, style. Um, yeah, like some countries in the world. There, there's a number of countries that I think have have done this. Mm-hmm. And well, really, just Portugal. Oh, was it just yeah. Portugal? As okay. far as all drugs. Okay, okay, okay. Right. Um, what do you What do you think is the like the chances of that becoming a thing here in this country? Like, are we are we on a are we on a uh, on a track towards <clears throat> making that a reality, or is that still just so you far know, up in the a, air. A year ago, I would have thought that is so out there that it just will never happen. Um, there's been a bunch of us who have been saying this for a long time. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just so obvious to me. Um, but there is a there is an openness with this overdose crisis and people have to do something. And we're trying to make the case that this is all about criminalization and pro- prohibition. 
and mm-hmm. uh, that we need to totally turn the thing upside down. And uh, the leader of the NDP party has come out as uh, in favor of decriminalization. And at the Liberal Convention, they had a number of um, things that they want on the platform, and that was one that they voted for that it support. Mm-hmm. Um, the prime minister has come out specifically saying that is not in on his list of things to do. Um, I think politically he probably needs to say that, but yeah. I don't think it's out of the question. Mm-hmm. Um, we could what we're what what I'm working on um, in Vancouver is trying to come up with a. Um, a Vancouver model of what decriminalization would look like. Um, advocate for like, let's do it for a year and measure a bunch of things and see what happens. I'm pretty sure everything would Does, look better. Well, that's that kind <laughs> yeah. of like um, the purge, where they just do it for a day. Everything's going to go a little bit different direction. Back okay. to the bowel thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, not that direction okay, either. Yeah. But uh, the the TED talk that you gave at TED Med um, was it called um, the Safe Injection Site? That that trial. What was the place called again? Insight. Insight. Um, Travis, which our of, guest was our kind guest of like Insight, good because that was a that started off as just a, a temporary thing. Yeah, it was a three year research project that was really driven by the community's demand for this. They mm-hmm. raised money. The whole place was funded outside the government, and then the government came in and uh, and funded uh, an evaluation of it. Um, just to get people off their backs, but they had every intent to close it down after that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but and this so, is safe yeah. injection sites. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and there was, and then we're stuck basically. So, Insight was the only one for a decade. So, right. um, and it wasn't until recently we opened up these other ones and other provinces and now caught on to it. The the thing that I'm really interested about this is it is it sounds like, and I mean, we look at Portugal, we look at this pilot pro, uh, program like Insight starting out and developing into more of a, a fully funded and fully launched thing. Um, People have a lot of opinions about what will and won't work, but isn't there data to tell us what will work? Like, if we look at Portugal's model, it, has that been successful on a large enough scale that we can say uh, unequivocally that it would just work here too? Unequivocally. So there's no reason that we need to like do another experiment, but that's kind of the way the world works. You know, every, even from one community to the next, you couldn't, you could do it. Sure, it works for you, but it would never work for us because this is the way we are. And from one province to the next, we have, we could never do that, but you could. But, um, there's so many lessons. 90% of it is just the same thing. The one, the one, um, question we would have with, um, how we implement a Portugal type model is what we do with a toxic drug supply. So they were having a lot of overdoses with heroin, but um, nobody's faced a problem like we have right now. So there's things obviously we can learn from Portugal and other European countries who've been more proactive at this, but um, what to do with a toxic drug supply is something this widespread is something that other countries haven't had to deal with. I want to, I want to, I think this is a really great time to segue into um, uh, the, the, what the fuck are these? (laughs) Basically dispensing, you're here, you're here in Halifax and, and I'm looking at these like these vending machine things behind us. I actually don't know anything at all about these, but, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is something that, that you are looking to implement in, in the scene in Vancouver to, to work as like a, a sort of harm reduction. How would that, how would that work? Yeah. Well, I think this is, uh, hopefully the next big thing. So, um, the, the story behind it is, uh, a little bit, um, 
uh, I don't know. Funny is not the right word, but interesting. So um, on this show, it's yeah, okay. yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, the um, we decided, um, you know, quite a while ago that we had to do something about the supply side. That people were buying these toxic drugs and overdosing. That no amount of supervised injection sites or handing out needles is going to change that. Um, supervised sites were never meant to watch people inject every time and right. uh, people inject a lot so mm-hmm. it's just not practical to do that um, and as long as people were buying drugs that were killing them we had to do, start offering people something else the first step in that was um, giving people injectable heroin and injectable hydromorphone and this program's been actually going on well before the overdose epidemic so um, for over 10 years there's a clinic where people get this but again it's expensive and medically very intensive to do this so um, it's not practical to scale up widespread hydromorphone pills that people buy on the street diverted pills um, can be easily ground up and injected and that's what people do with them for the Mm -hmm. most part Mm -hmm. so um, I wrote a grant to Health Canada um, last summer saying that we needed to experiment with ways to get people access to hydromorphone pills I was giving a talk in Victoria, B.C. last December, and I said we have different models we're working on. If people have ideas how we could dispense these things, and at the end of my talk, I said, I mean, we could even put them in vending machines. So um, the the headline on the paper the next day is public health doctor wants to put poisonous pills in (laughs) vending machines. Yeah, Yeah. talking Um, about those headlines that you read, Yeah, Yeah. and I would have read read that. I hate him. (laughs) So I did about, uh, I bet, 20 interviews in the next two days, and every interview was exactly the same. Well, doctor, I hear you want to give these drugs out to people in vending machines. Where would you put the vending machines? And I'd say, well, it's not really about the vending machines. It's really about how we get people access to a safer drug supply yeah. and I just use that as kind of an extreme example of how we distribute them mm-hmm. and then the next because you question, were just talking off the top like that I was never just an idea off the top the, well it's not off the top of my head I'm, I think about everything before I say so yeah it was off the top of my head he's the director of CDC everything is calculated I know what I'm going to say anyways I the next question obviously was well how will you stop children from getting vending into vending machines I said well it's not about children you know we'll make sure that that would never happen we'll think of that yeah we'll just make them really valid question when I was a kid I Loved the vending machines. machines. Yeah. So um, after 20 interviews, I was totally convinced that we should get vending machines. I thought that's a great. I was. It was kind of like a far flung idea. And then I thought, yeah, that is the perfect solution to so all you our. You just threw shit. it out there, yeah. like as a as like, oh, just while I'm thinking about this, this is uh, oh, it could be like this. And then you did all the interviews, and then you kind of thought. God damn, I was on to something. Wow, that's kind of crazy. So then uh, Corey um, sent me an email saying, I hear you like vending machines. I have a vending machine. (laughs) Wow, I never thought that they would actually exist. So uh, we've been in contact um, and discussing this now for several months. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're we're modifying some of these machines that they could actually do this. And... uh, I think it's a it's a low barrier way to get people access to these drugs, and to me, this is the only um, urgent thing that we can do. So we could continue with our harm reduction, continue building our addiction system. We could 
go along, but it means we ha- will have 1,500 more people die this yeah, year. Something's got to We got to do something different. It's not good enough. Yeah. And uh, we give we're giving people the same message. We continue to do things that are evidence based. I think more supervised injection sites are great. <laughs> I think if we offer people injectable heroin, that would be great. But it's just we need to move do something dramatic and fast. And I think. Uh, this could be the way we can do something dramatic and, and fast. And people should know, um, you know, Corey took Brian and I through these the other day um, here at Dispension, and these aren't your vending machines that you get it at school with no. treats in them. I mean, this one actually, just as, a, as an example, does have treats in it, uh, but, I mean, there's lots of... There's like heavy duty security on them. They weigh a thousand pounds. I mean, there's several aspects to them that. Well, it's like an ATM. That make them, exactly. Yeah. There's several aspects to these things that make them not your average yeah. vending machine. Because when you say vending machine, pe- people think, oh, the thing that I get my candy bar from, I'm pretty sure if I just hit that hard enough, it'll break. I can steal everything in it, mm. which think, is not the case with I, these. And I think the, I think the point of, of, of like all of this is, is that you guys are experts in what you do and and obviously you're vetting this entire process and you're you're going through the the data and trying to figure out what is going to work the best for the population that's being impacted by this and which frankly is the entire province that you're working in because even people who aren't you know directly affected by the um the the opioid epidemic they're affected in in some other way by by you know the other people in that make up the community, right? Yeah. So you guys are obviously doing all of your research into this. It seems like the people who object to um, things like this are the people who are like Jeremy, who just read the headline, right? Like the <laughs> Which dumb is far people too like many Jeremy. People. Hey, yeah. listen, I don't object. I do have some questions. Well, though. well, I wouldn't. Um, I, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't use the term. You guys think this is a great idea? Like it is a. It is a hard sell for me Guys also. and girls. Yeah. I, uh, and, no, you know, everybody. Everyone, everybody. everybody. It's, it's not as though I have a whole team of people thinking this is the greatest idea. It's just idea. you. It's all on you. Yeah. Well, there's a, there is a, we really need to uh, change the discussion because there is a push by the medical community and doctors that they shouldn't be prescribing these things at all. Mm-hmm. And the last thing we need is to put more drugs out there so we why, need to why is this. that though because like yeah. I, when i when we talk about this it makes people are going to do drugs anyway so if yeah. that's the case and and the, and and if we restrict them from doing the drugs that they want to do then in turn they're going to get the drugs that are going to kill them yeah then like like so what the where why? Like, why aren't we prescribed? Why, why aren't we prescribing? Why aren't, why aren't we going? All right, fine. Look, you're going to do it. Yeah. And we don't want you to get your hands on the stuff that is going to kill you because yeah. you don't know how to deal with the strips and or whatever. Yeah. Then here, here is some that's not going to kill you. And, and you then can we can it. work with you. And right. then from then we can yeah. work on a way to like wean you off it or whatever. I guess the fundamental the fundamental aspect is kind of that whole criminality part we we talked about is that right. But, the, but that's what I'm asking is like yeah. how, like it, it, mm-hmm. it's so hard for me to wrap my head around how. Well, it's a, but it's a whole it it's way. a 180 degrees reversal of what we're supposed to do with people with addiction. They right. come in, they're using these drugs. We'll tell them it's bad for you to use these drugs. They're killing you. We have to find something else. And uh, 
I think for um, for many people that is just not working. And so pe- physicians and the medical community feel they should not do anything that could cause harm and they're not actually responsible for people doing harmful things. Right. They don't want to be on the hook or I gave you these drugs. Now, having said that, prescription drugs don't kill people from overdose for the most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they're... They could, yeah. but um, the person who's using drugs every day, using opioids, they can look at a pill, they know how much is in it, they take it, they get what they need from it, and they move on. Right. It's the people that um, don't have the, um, that don't know what they're buying. And, uh, and that has really been the um, story forever, where people who are using illegal drugs are buying from an illegal market that's non-regulated. Um, mm. For years, many people had a steady supply of heroin. Uh, dealers don't want to kill their customers, so they came up with this, you know, a dosing and a, how people buy it that uh, people weren't overdosing. And people who got diverted prescription drugs, for the most part, weren't overdosing on diverted prescription drugs. They were maintaining their addiction, getting into trouble with the law. All kinds of bad things were happening, but they weren't overdosing. And but yeah. yes, and clearly now yeah. they are because they it's are. it's yeah. it's all we hear. It's all we hear yeah. in the news and it has been like that for the last few and years. And from a criminal justice point of view, it's fascinating that I must I've given so many tours through the downtown east side and insight and the question always is, well, don't you give them drugs there? And I say, well, no, actually they have to go to the alley, they have to steal some stuff, do sex, whatever it takes to get their drugs. And then they come here with drugs of unknown purity and and people, well, isn't that the whole problem? Isn't the right. whole problem yeah. we're forcing yeah. people into an illegal situation and they're getting arrested and everything? They say, exactly. Yeah. We should have, Insight in 20, 2003, should have had a machine that gives out drugs. So that's what we should have been it's, doing for the beginning. Yeah. So. It seems like, it seems like People who are on the other side of this argument, on the other side of the harm reduction argument, um, are, they are seeing, it seems like it's, they're seeing what we have now and the next step is that the problem is gone from what we do. Instead of the, instead of the multitude of things, uh, that need to be done in between those two goalposts. Yeah. <laughs> the problem we have and what we'd like to have in the future, what the pro, and the, the problem solved over here, and that it's one step from one to the other, but it's it's many steps. And harm reduction is, or all the aspects of harm reduction are a lot of those steps in between. It seems yeah, like. you have to. It's, I I think harm <clears throat> reduction is part of treatment. So yeah. we have to engage with people. Number one, we have to in this environment we have to get people access to a safer supply of drugs, and then we can deal with the housing trauma, get them on methadone. There's things that we can do to move people up that ladder. But if we start the ladder halfway up the wall. We're going to miss most people. And uh, you can't expect, like, our expectations for people who have been had a traumatized life for 25 years, they're not going to be turned around with, like, a week in a detox. Like, it's a long, it it took them a long time to get there, and it's going to take a long time to climb back. And, Mm -hmm. uh, um, and, but people can do it. So, I I mean, (laughs) there's a lot of, uh, a lot of success stories. The natural history of using drugs is usually people stop using drugs. Yeah. But as I said at the beginning, it's usually when they found something better to do. And mm-hmm. uh, we have to make sure we keep them alive and 
HIV free and, and not in jail all the time, all those things we, along the way of their drug career, we have to, it, we're just doing all this damage to people. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I just want to say thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Mark, for uh, taking the time to sit down and chat with us today. Um, thank it, you, Dr. Mark. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a conversation that I think obviously is very important. And I hope it, uh, I hope it resonated with all of you at home. And thank you for taking the time to sit down and, and join us for this live stream. Um, hopefully we'll be doing more, more of these soon in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and while you're here, um, uh, a huge, huge favor would be to just share this out. This is going to be up for, for a while. So we want as many eyes and ears to be on this as possible. Uh, like we said, this is a really important conversation. So thank you all so much. A uh, huge thank you to, uh, Dispension for, for hosting us. Big thank you to Atlantic Livestream for making this, this possible. And that is it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this I'm, is... I'm Mark. Uh, da- no, 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 no. No, no. You're Dr. Mark. Yeah, Dr. Mark. <laughs> and this is Sick Boy. <laughs> For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.